0: All right, Exodus chapter 16 is where we pick back up this evening. You now as we come to this point, we are sort of uh, following the route of the children of Israel. Of course, we saw God deliver them. Uh, powerfully through the miraculous work of the Red Sea and of course chapter 15 then we saw that great celebration and song as they were rejoicing and singing unto the Lord sort of because of the triumphant work that he had accomplished on their behalf and then of course as we tailed out the end of chapter 15 there that first um, miracle that the Lord brought them to as they came uh, to the area of Mara, and remember they were thirsty; uh, they were lacking water, and because of that, they began to grumble and to complain against Moses. And God showed Moses that tree that was there and told him to take that tree and to toss it into the water. And as he did that, those very waters, which were bitter or it seemed sort of a brackish, uh, they were polluted in some sense; they wouldn't quench the thirst. God turned those bitter waters sweet and allowed them, therefore, uh, to be healed. And in the midst of that, God said, verse 25 of chapter 15, that through these things that he was testing them. Uh, God also revealed himself to them because through that we saw as well that it was in that Uh, same situation that the Lord revealed himself to them as Jehovah Rapha, the Lord their healer. And not only was God testing them and developing character, but God was also revealing more of himself to them and who he was. And, you know, important to keep in mind as we move forward journeying now with the children of Israel through this season in the wilderness that we'll watch them go through, that a lot of the events that are taking place, certainly they were historical events. They were things that were transpiring. Uh, but God, being a father by heart, is interested in raising children and developing them to their full potential and what He plans and intends, that they might know Him better, that they might ultimately become everything that He intends for them to be. So, because of that, the Lord will take them through various different scenarios. And a part of that process was to test them, to develop their character to cause them to mature to discover things about God as well as discover things about themselves and uh, we want to keep that in mind especially as we're going through these chapters together because we want to realize that there are lessons to be learned here these weren't just historical events there were also lessons behind them in fact in light of that before we jump into chapter 16 this evening go with me if you would to first corinthians chapter 10 and just want to read you a few verses from there to uh, help you keep this in mind as we go through this section of the historical narrative of the children of Israel. Uh, the Holy Spirit, through Paul the Apostle, gives us sort of an important insight here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, as he's referring back. Uh, to the events historically of the nation of Israel. And he begins talking about there uh, in chapter 10, verse 1. He says, I don't want you to be unaware that all of our fathers were under the cloud as they passed through the sea. They were all baptized in the Moses in the cloud and the sea. They ate the same spiritual food, drank the same spiritual drink. For they all drank of that spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ and we'll talk about some of those things we'll see even this evening in chapter 16 and 17 what's being referred to there uh, but particularly notice if you would with me in the 11th verse Paul the apostle states this he says now all these things happened to them that is the children of Israel all these things happened to them as examples and they were notice here's the key written For our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So the Bible tells us, yes, these were historical experiences. These were literal things that they were going through historically as God was developing them, as God was working in their midst. But the word of God tells us, particularly in verse 11, that the historical narrative and the events of the Old Testament, it says, were written down as well for our admonition. That is for our warnings, for our lessons uh, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So these weren't just events historically that we're studying that happened to them. These were things that God also said, but yet there were lessons in the midst of what was going on. That God, looking all the way down to the ends of the age, to you and I this evening who worship the Lord, that we might, from those examples and the things they went through, their mistakes Their successes, the things that they saw of God, these things were written as well and recorded, it says, for our admonition. So come back with me to Exodus chapter 16. Just keep that in mind. This isn't just historical information. Uh, These are accounts that God has set before us in his word to glean lessons for ourselves, even at this stage in our spiritual journey with the Lord as the congregation of God, as servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we left off Israel there in the place of Elam at the end of chapter 15. Remember, that was a place where there were 12 wells of water, chapter 15, verse 27 told us, and there were 70 palm trees. Uh, So they left off in this beautiful oasis spot, God giving them a reprieve. After a time of thirsting and struggling at Mara, God knows how to adequately balance both our buffetings and our blessings. And sometimes God has us walking through the valleys of the shadow of death. And other times he has us by the still waters. And he knows how in balance and moderation to give us both times maybe that are uh, stressful and more trying as well as at times bringing us to those places like Elam that are like an oasis, times of refreshing when there's adequate resources and it's a time when we can, in a sense, be refreshed and renewed. And we left them off there. It seems God gave them a time of refreshment. Chapter 16, verse 1 picks up by saying, And then they journeyed from Elam. So, again, the idea here, remember, there was that glory cloud, the pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night that we've been seeing. And whenever that pillar of cloud moved, the children of Israel moved. Whenever it camped and stood still, they stood still. So, at some point here, that pillar of cloud begins to move, and God's people, recognizing the presence of the Lord, was moving to a new location they packed up they begin to journey from Elam and it says all the congregation of the children of Israel came to the wilderness of sin now don't think of sin in the sense spiritually of what you and i would uh, envision when we hear the word sin it's probably just a shortened reference to refer to the area of sinai uh, which ultimately they're journeying towards that it would take that name in a shortened form. Uh, it says which is between elam and sinai and ultimately by chapter 20 remember the mount of sinai that's where they'll receive the law The Ten Commandments will be given to them. So they're en route to the area of Sinai. It says it was on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. Verse 2, And the whole congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the children of Israel said to them, Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the pots of meat, and when we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Now, I don't know if you've noticed, this seems to be what is going to continue to be a repetitive pattern among the congregation of God's people, the congregation of Israel, in their experiences and in their relationship with Moses and Aaron, even among the leadership we saw back in chapter 15, verse 24, that when, remember, they were thirsty in the wilderness and they rushed forward to that area where they saw water, but yet it was bitter and it didn't quench their thirst. The first thing that they did was turned, and chapter 15, verse 24 says, they complained against Moses. Uh, and here, once again, circumstances become difficult. Again, they're hungry, totally normal, natural, God-given desire. They're longing for something to eat. They want to be satisfied, uh, and it seems that there's no food. There's, there's that concern of, oh my goodness, our supplies, our rations are running low. We're going to starve, and the fears and the apprehensions begin to come. The natural desires are there to want to be satisfied, and they don't see where it's going to come from. So what they begin to do when some of the difficulty and pressure starts to happen is it says, verse 2, that they begin to complain. Now, interesting uh, to take note uh, how quick our memories fail in regards to the wonderful works in which God does in our life. I I mean, think about thus far. The children of Israel have watched God bring those ten miraculous plagues when they were in Egypt. They watched God part the Red Sea and lead them through on dry ground and then close the waters of our Pharaoh and his armies when it looked like there was no way of escape and nowhere to turn. God made a way when there was no way. Then they just experienced God turning the bitter waters of Mara sweet, so that they can be refreshed, and, and they've seen the hand of God, they've seen God's power, they've seen God's faithfulness, but much like you and I, isn't it amazing how quick our memories fail regarding the faithfulness of God, and the power of God, and his ways in which he's worked in our lives, and how quick we are to begin to question, and more than just question, to actually begin to complain, to begin to murmur, and, and, and even how selective our memory becomes, You notice what they're saying there in verse 3... Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. In other words, there in a sense that it would have been better to have just died in Egypt. Uh, you know, God's deliverance of us and God's salvation of us, it would have just been better to have just died there. It seems like it says that at least there we had pots of meat and bread to the full. Now, isn't it amazing how they forgot the whips of the taskmasters? They forgot the pain and the affliction and the suffering and the misery and the emptiness emptiness and how selective our memory can be sometimes where we reinterpret our past and as a christian maybe we begin to struggle or god lets us go through a trying time or a difficult circumstance and then all of a sudden we have selective memory we start to think man you know it actually was easier before i was following god and all of a sudden the devil begins to blind our minds and perception and we start reinterpreting our history and forgetting the misery and the emptiness and what it was like before we came to Christ, and somehow thinking that it was actually better before God's deliverance in our life, before God's involvement in our life, much like they are doing here. And they begin to notice, in a sense, uh, insinuate or begin to uh, question the motivation of their leadership with Moses and Aaron. It says, you brought us out into this wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger so all of a sudden they begin to uh, cast dispersion upon you know moses and aaron's leadership and say look you you brought us out here uh, and 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 you had ill intentions and they begin to question the motivations of their leadership and think that somehow they brought them out there just to destroy them and i want you to think of how ludicrous really the complaining and their perspective is at this point as if somehow god would have gone through all that effort right to bring all the plagues in egypt Part the Red Sea, lead them through on dry ground, and do all those things. And say, yeah, I, I did all that, and all those miracles I did in your life, just so that I could bring you out in the wilderness and watch you die—a really slow, miserable death, where you, you know, have starvation, one by one, as if somehow that's what the nature of God is like—that that God would take us through so much to say, yeah. But that was just because I wanted to really watch you die, this really slow, gruesome death. And how many times we can do that? We know we've seen God work so powerfully in our lives, and then we get in a tight spot, and all of a sudden, we begin to question the Lord, and we start to grumble and complain and, and think somehow God's brought us this far to now just drop us off and to let us die right in the middle of maybe where he has us at. So they begin, again, and it's a a normal desire. They're hungry, but in the weakness of their flesh now, they're complaining, they're wrestling. Again, very interesting to see. It took God just a moment to get them out of Egypt, but God God takes God a long time to get Egypt out of them because Egypt is still on their minds. And you know what? When, when we experience God's salvation and deliverance, God delivers us and saves us out of the world and out of Egypt in a very powerful and a very quick way. But truth be told, if we're all honest, it takes God a little bit of time, though he gets us out of Egypt quickly, it takes God a little bit of time to work in all of our lives to get Egypt out of our system. Uh, and to work through our lives and help us to grow and to sanctify us and develop us so that we're not still hearkening back to our carnality and to the old days. And and we'll see, you know, God's taking them through a process here. Well, verse four says, then the Lord said to Moses, behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you and the people shall go out and gather a certain quota every day that I may, notice again God says, that I may test them. Now, was God testing them because he wanted to see what was in their hearts? Of course not. God always knows what's in our hearts. Uh, a lot of times God is testing us for our own development, our own maturity. And the wonderful thing about God's tests is, spiritual tests is all of God's t- tests are, 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 are passed. The issue is he will let me, he will let you keep taking the same test until we pass. So the key for us is to pass the test sooner rather than later. You can't fail a test that God allows to come into your life. He'll let you continue to repeat the same test again and again, and again, Uh, but God says, hey, I'm testing you because I want to see you pass the test, and then when you pass that test, we can move on from 101 to 102. We can move on from trust the Lord 103 to 104. We can move on to believing that God will come through and walking by faith, uh, and, and, and God just allows us to be tested many times to see where we're at to be reminded of our own condition and as a part of developing and strengthening our own character. So here God speaks to Moses and he says, Moses, I'm going to provide for them. And God speaks of this miraculous work that he would do where it says he was going to rain bread or provision from heaven. And he says, every day they're to go out and to gather a quota, whether they will, God says, I want to test them to see whether they will walk in my law or not, to allow them to see if they were going to be truly obedient to God and his word, and to trust him, and we'll see more of what that refers to as we move on in our verses here. And it shall be on the sixth day, God says, that they shall prepare what they bring in, and it shall be twice as much as they gather daily. So this, what we know, is called manna. We'll see it in the later verses. God says, I'm going to give this miraculous bread and provision from heaven, to sustain them there in the wilderness, and God says every day I'm going to give them a quota, and God's going to give them instructions in regards to how to receive this for their lives, and it will be something that God sets before them as an opportunity to exercise their trust upon God and their dependency upon God, God, daily dependency upon the Lord, that he would provide for their need and sustain them each day. And he says as well, verse 5, that on the sixth day that they would receive a double portion, and we'll see more of that as we move forward. Look at verse 6, it goes on, Then Moses and Aaron said to all the children of Israel, At evening you shall know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt, and in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord. Now take notice what Moses understood and what he conveys to the people is what I've said before is not only was God working in them God also was trying to reveal himself to them because Moses tells them verse 6 and 7 here in the evening and in the morning he says you shall know that it was the Lord who has done this and he says and you shall see the glory of the Lord and I'll tell you something gang as we experience the things that we go through in this life and the tests, and the trials, and the tribulations, whether it's seeing if God's going to come through to provide for us and our family in some way, or whether the Lord is going to come to our aid in a situation, and to satisfy some hunger or desire in our life, and meet our need. So many times in the midst of that, God's not just alone looking to meet the need, as much as God is also looking to open our eyes and to let us see things about himself. To be able to work in such a way whereby in the midst of doing what he does, we step back and have to say, you know what? There is no natural explanation for that. That had to be the Lord. I know that was the Lord. The way it was fulfilled, the way in which it came to pass... That had to have been God because God wants to reveal himself and God wants to glorify himself in our life. It says here in the morning, you shall see the glory of the Lord. God wanted to work in a way whereby no one else could get the glory where they would see the glory of the Lord and therefore be led to give glory to the Lord. For verse seven, Moses goes on to say, for he hears your complaints, and now notice Moses redirects their understanding of what they were actually doing. He says, he hears your complaints, notice, against the Lord. Now, verse two tells us that they complained against Moses and Aaron. So, when they were You know, articulating their complaints, the old King James literally says they were murmuring, which basically isn't even a real word, the word murmur. It's a transliteration of the sound that we make many times when we have a grumbling, complaining spirit where we kind of under our breath. That's where the idea murmur comes from. So they're, they're, they're murmuring, complaining under their breath and it says here that as they're complaining against Moses and Aaron saying I can't believe they made that decision and why did they and they're questioning their their judgment and their leadership and the decisions they made it says that the Lord saw and heard their complaints against him it says here Moses says the Lord hears your complaints against the Lord but what are we he says that you complain against us in other words Moses is just saying look we're just following like you are remember that glory cloud thing we're we're not we're not uh, you know giving direction we're just trying to receive direction like the rest of you are and we're just following what god's doing what why complain against us we're just trying to follow the lord just like you are certainly they had a role of leadership but they understood there was nothing in a sense distinctively different about them Then those who are part of the congregation, even though they function in that leadership role, they say, why do you complain against us? This shall be seen when the Lord gives you, verse 8, meat to eat in the evening and in the morning bread to the full. For the Lord, he says again, here's your complaints which you make against him. And what are we, he says a second time, your complaints are not against us. But against the Lord. Now, I think there's a really important insight there. A lot of times, when, hey, and I'll be the first to admit, we begin to grumble and complain in circumstances. And, and we articulate our complaints and we exercise our complaints again maybe it's in our job place or maybe it's in the church in the body of Christ or, or and we begin to have complaints about our life and our circumstances and our situations we fail to remember the fact that in essence who is sovereign and who is controlling all of our life circumstances God is God's in complete control of all of my circumstances, what happens in my life and doesn't happen in my life. Everything is father-filtered. It all comes through the filter of God's love and God's wisdom and God's permissive decision to allow it. Just like Job, when he experienced very, very difficult things, when Satan was attacking ruthlessly his life, all of that still came through the sovereign permission of, of God allowing those experiences in Job's life. So in light of that, when we realize and we say, hey, God's on the throne, God controls all things, I need to then remember in in good conscience before the Lord that when I begin to complain about my circumstances or something in my life or the way something went and I start complaining and complaining, I'm really complaining against the Lord. I'm complaining against what God's allowed to happen. I'm complaining against a decision that God has allowed to come to pass. I'm complaining against the circumstances that God has allowed to unfold in my life. And in a sense, my complaints aren't against this person or against the circumstance. Truly, my complaints are against God's care for me. I'm complaining against what God's allowing. And in a sense, I'm grumbling and complaining against God. And and God sees it from that perspective. And Moses certainly gives interesting insight here. He says, listen, your complaints, really your complaints are against the Lord. Uh, And God help us. We need to be careful, though we all are, are susceptible to this weakness, that we don't find ourselves complaining against God's care and the way that God works in our life. He's a good, loving father. He doesn't make mistakes. And we need to guard our hearts and be cautious against doing such things. He says, your complaints are against the Lord. And verse 9, Moses and Aaron spoke, or Moses spoke to Aaron, excuse me, saying, say to all the congregation of the children of Israel, come near before the Lord, for he has heard your complaints. And it came to pass, as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the children of Israel, that they looked toward the wilderness and behold the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. Now exactly what the Hebrew is referring to there isn't certain. It almost seems again as God is somewhat sort of you know uh, you know correcting or, or or speaking a word of discipline to his children who are in a grumbling attitude they're complaining in their spirits over what's transpiring in the moment uh, that the Lord says you know come near and it seems some commentators think that when it references there that they saw the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud the ideas of you know the, the fire of God's presence again the Bible tells us in Hebrews that the Lord is a consuming fire and the idea of God saying uh Uh, come here, I hear what you're doing, please don't provoke me uh, any further by what you're doing. And you know what, I think that grumbling and complaining, it does provoke the heart of God. I mean, what parent, what parent enjoys when your children grumble and complain? You're doing the best possible you absolutely can to do everything to make their life as wonderful as possible and when they're ungrateful and they're critical and they're complaining, as a parent, you know how that that, that grates on you. You're thinking, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> Do you know how hard I'm trying to make everything as wonderful as possible? And then you're going to grumble and complain about my care or, or, or you know, my, my uh, way of working uh, to try and provide for you and take care of you. And in a sense, when we complain against the Lord, uh, I think there is a sense of it where there's a provocation. Now, w- Despite that, these chapters, in a sense, make it so evident that God is so gracious. Because here they are complaining against God. And God says, I'm going to rain down. Now, I would want to read there, if I'm thinking God's anything like me, I'm going to rain down fire and brimstone and toast you for grumbling and complaining. How dare you? But right, but God's not like us. You want to talk about God's grace and God's patience. Here they are complaining against the Lord and yet, what does God do? He hears their complaints, he addresses it, but God's totally gracious to them. And here they are whining, it's almost like a whiny prayer, you know, Oh, we don't have nothing to eat, it was so much better in Egypt. And, and it almost, it's almost like this whiny prayer amidst their need, and God still answers their whiny prayer. You know, God's so gracious with us. You know, he, he, like Psalm 103 says, he remembers our frame that were like dust, and like a father has pity on his children, so the Lord pities us. And, and just like a, a child, you know, maybe maybe we're whiny or cranky, and yet you're still compassionate to them as a parent because you understand. Hey, you know, look, they're you know they're young, they don't quite understand. And and God's so gracious. And here God graciously, despite their complaining and their whining, he still answers their prayer. He still meets their need and is so gracious to them. Verse 11 says, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, I have heard the complaints of the children of Israel. And he says, speak to them saying, and I wonder if they were thinking, uh uh-oh, here it comes. (laughs) What's he going to say? Tell them, look, I'm going to answer their prayer. I'm going to meet their need. Yeah, they complained. Yes, they grumbled. Yes, they whined and questioned my care of them. But speak to them saying at twilight, you shall eat meat. And in the morning, you shall be filled with bread. The very two things they complained that Egypt had, but that they were lacking. And you shall know that I am the Lord, your God. And so it was that quails came up at evening and covered the camp in the morning and the dew lay all round the camp and when the layer of dew lifted there on the surface of the wilderness was a small round substance as fine as frost on the ground so god not only is going to supply this manna for them daily but notice the immediate need verse 13 tells us is god supplies meat for them uh, i mean you're talking here they are complaining and god's saying all right bread and water for you that's it God says, I'm going to give you some meat. I'm going to give you protein. I'm going to give you a, a steak dinner. He actually gives to them these quail. And interesting, historians say that, you know, quails would migrate uh, through these areas long distances. And because they would travel long distances, particularly in the spring, that on occasion they would actually, because they traveled such long journeys, they would fly to the point of exhaustion, and then eventually a lot of times just fall down to the ground. So uh, again, whether God's using nature or causing something miraculous, either way, uh, God causes that particular flock of, of quail, whatever it was, enough of those quail. As they're flying, they get tired at just the right spot, imagine that, at just the right place, and there's just enough of those quail to fall down, to provide a meal, to sustain them, to take care of them, and you know, how many times do we see these indications in the Word of God where God, like the Word of God says, he can set a table in the wilderness? It don't matter where we're at or what we're going through, I love the story of Elijah where it tells us that Elijah, is he's there by the uh, brook Cherith, uh, that every day God brought food to him by ravens going and dropping off food to him every day. I mean, you're talking about God having no limitations, being able to meet our needs in whatever way is necessary. So uh, these quails come and they're covering the camp in the evening, sort of a one-time event so that they can be sustained, they can be nourished. And then on a regular basis, we read that every morning it says there was a layer of dew that was there. And when it lifted on the surface of the wilderness, there was this small round substance as fine as frost on the ground. And this would be the daily supply that God made for them. So when the children of Israel saw, they said to one another, what is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, this is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. Now, ultimately, they refer to it as manna in the word of God. And the word manna basically means, in the Hebrew, what is it? So that's a pretty creative way to give a name to something. Apparently, they see this uh, dew, this this, uh, stuff laying all over the ground that God supplied for them, this spiritual miraculous bread that God sustains them with every day. And somebody, what's this? What, What is it? I don't know. What is it? I don't know. And enough people said, well, let's just call it. What is it? You know, nobody knows what it is. Uh, but nonetheless, though they did not know what it was, it sustained them and it nourished them. It supplied their need and, and and God provided it for them. we'll see every day as it was available for them, it says, it was the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. And this is the thing which the Lord has commanded. Let every man gather it. Now here's the instructions God gives to them. Let every man gather it according to each one's need. One omer, and that's equivalent to about two quarts. the idea is. For each person, according to the number of persons, let every man take for those who are in his tent. And the children of Israel did so and gathered... Some more and some less, depending upon how many members were in their household or within their tent. So when they measured it by omers, he who gathered much had nothing left over, and he who gathered little had no lack. Every man gathered, each one according to his need. And Moses said, now take notice of the instructions here, let no one leave any of it till morning. Notwithstanding, they did not heed Moses. But some of them left part of it until morning, and it bred worms and stank, like the words the Bible uses sometimes. And Moses was angry with them. So they gathered it every morning, every man according to his need. And when the sun became hot, it melted. So this instruction is given. Every day God would supply this dew-like substance. They would get up in the morning, and there it was all around the camp. Uh, And it says that they were to go out every day, and every day they were to gather according to each one's need. And notice it says that they were not to leave any of it beyond the morning. In other words, they weren't to try and store it up overnight, but every day they had to trust again that God would supply it the next day. Uh, If you think about this, here's God providing for their need, Uh, and he's already teaching them exactly what Jesus would tell us to ultimately pray, give us this day our daily bread. Now, I want you to think about something. The way that God's providing for their need to sustain them, it's, it's really not the most efficient way. I mean, you're thinking, well, why not just like, you know, give them stockpiles of the stuff and let them store it up forever. You got a whole big group of people. Why every single day repeat the same thing again and again and again? Why not let them just store it up? Uh, Save yourself the hassle. Save yourself the extra effort. But instead, they had to every day go out and regather it. And of course, it says that they did not obey the instruction of the Lord. Some of them were left part of it until the morning. In other words, they tried to gather extra because they're just like you and I. They're thinking, well, I mean, this is silly. Why go out and pick up an omer every day just enough for the day? I mean, if I just get two omers or three omers, then, you know, I I can do something else tomorrow. Instead of having to get up early, I can sleep in. And I'll just keep my little stockpile over here and I'll just, for the next two, three days, I'll just keep plenty there and I don't have to get up early. uh, Before the sun rises, I like to sleep in. I'm not a morning person. So uh, some began to do that and notice God always keeps his word. It says that day when the sun became hot, it would either melt away, but when they tried to stockpile, verse 20 says, it bred worms And it stank. So God wouldn't allow them to try and hoard up extra. God gave them instruction to every day, daily go out and to partake of exactly what they needed. Now, as we look at these things, certainly this was something God was letting them learn and experience where every day they had to depend that God would supply for their need for the next day. So what was God doing? He was teaching them to learn how to live by faith. He was teaching them how every day to believe that if God said he would supply, that God would come through and supply. God was teaching them how every day to live in daily dependence and reliance upon the Lord. Not to just one day obey God's word and then try and take the next few days off and survive off the stockpile of yesterday's obedience, but instead to every day look to the Lord, to every day begin by starting out seeking the Lord with expectancy and dependency. And of course, ultimately, Jesus in John chapter 6, we know, refers to this very account in John chapter 6, referring to himself as the very bread of life. Come with me to John chapter 6 and just take note of how Jesus, relating to this event, attaches it to himself in the same way that physical bread sustained them and that physical bread nourished them to keep them physically healthy. Jesus references how he himself is spiritual nourishment and the spiritual bread to keep us spiritually healthy. Uh, It tells us chapter, John chapter six, beginning in verse, look at me, beginning in verse 30. It says, therefore, they said to Jesus, what sign will you perform that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Our fathers ate manna in the desert, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said, most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Lord, then give us this bread always. In other words, if you're talking about something better than that manna, then give that to us. And then Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. Now look with me over in verse 48. Again, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead, but this is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die I am the living bread which came down from heaven if anyone eats of this bread he will live forever and the bread that I shall give is my flesh which I give for the life of the world so again all of this being a beautiful picture and a typology in the same way this bread was supplied from heaven and it was available every day, and they had to depend upon it every day, and each one had to partake of his need daily. They couldn't store it up, and it's what supplied them to keep them physically nourished and sustained and to give them physical life through their journey during their time in the wilderness. Jesus says spiritually, I am the bread of life. So then that makes it very interesting as we take note of the account we're looking at here in Exodus chapter 16. There are a few lessons we can draw out of their experience for what should be our experience with Jesus as the bread of life. You take notice first of all that it says in verse 18 of chapter 16 in Exodus, it says, every man gathered each according to his own need. In other words, someone else couldn't partake of the manna on your behalf. Everybody had their own need. And everybody had to take into account. I need to be sustained. Myself. I have my own individual need. To partake of that manna for myself. And I need to make sure that that need is met. In the same way. Everybody has spiritual need in their lives. My wife can't supply. Off of my sustaining my own spiritual need. And her living off of the fumes of what I partake of spiritually. My children cannot partake of what I partake of spiritually and be sustained. They have their own need. I have my own need of the Lord Jesus Christ in my life. We all do. And we all need to be partaking of the bread of life. We need to be having a continual partaking of the life of the Lord. And again, as we think of the bread that was supplied, that manna, that daily bread, it of course reminds us too Of the word of God. Because Jesus said what? Man does not live by bread alone. But by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And I have a daily need to be sustained and fed from the word of God. The living word Jesus Christ. As well as the written word. That God has given to us. To sustain my life spiritually. And there's a need in my life for that. Take notice as well. That it was necessary every day. That they had to partake of the nourishment that they needed for the day and they could not do what well. they could not store up one day and then try and live off of that for the days ahead to come a- and how can we not on occasion if we were to be honest not all admit that sometimes we've all been guilty of that kind of trap that just like they tried to ignore the instruction and to store up a few days' worth and to live off of that and it didn't work You know, and how often, on occasion, if we're not careful as Christians, sometimes we think, well, you know, I'm just what I'm going to do is I'm just I I spend an hour, hour and a half in the Word of God, and and an hour, hour and a half with the Lord because I know I got a really busy week, and therefore I won't spend any time with the Lord the next two or three days, but I'll really read six or seven chapters today, and I'll have a real good, strong, and then we try and live off of spiritual nourishment from one day for the next few days ahead. And does that ever work? It never works. And that we need daily spiritual nourishment in our lives. We need to feed upon the word of God daily. Listen, I, you know, I just told someone again, even this day, in, in a counseling appointment, I don't know how many times I've repeated the same thing. I said, look, I would rather you spend 15 minutes every day with Jesus. I'd rather you read the Bible every day for 15 minutes than every six days in guilt, sit down and gorge yourself for an hour and a half on 17 chapters trying to store up a stockpile of spiritual nourishment because that never works does it it never works we need to be daily partaking of an experience with jesus as the bread of life we need to be daily partaking of the nourishment of the word of god if we try and keep it till later and live off of yesterday's spiritual experience that never ever works It just ends up stinking and becoming something where our flesh begins to take control again and our life, the rottenness, begins to come forth like this manna here. And it is interesting as well, isn't it, that it was necessary for them to, to seek it early. It only lasted until a certain time. As soon as the sun began to rise, it began to dissipate. Again, the Bible does certainly encourage us in many places, those who seek me early, shall be found, God says. And again, I understand Oh, I'm not a morning person and this and that and, and I'm not trying to be legalistic but I would say, if we are honest, is it not true there is something very healthy and wonderful about beginning our day with the Lord. Maybe the primary time that we get to spend with the Lord may be at lunch or maybe you're an evening person but there is still something very valuable about beginning the day partaking of the bread of life, spending some time with Jesus, seeking Him early, that we might be nourished because our spiritual man needs nourishment. Just like our physical life needs nourishment and we can't do what they did spiritually, we need that daily consistent nourishment from the Lord. And this becomes just again, some beautiful pictures and analogies that we can apply to our lives in regards to what they were experiencing. Verse 23 says, And then He said to them, This is what the Lord has said. Tomorrow is a Sabbath rest. Now, there's the first reference to the Sabbath. We'll see more of that to come, where God was instituting this time of rest for them. And this will ultimately be uh, put forth in the law. At this point, the law hasn't been given, but it seems there was some type of a pattern, maybe that God had already established in an informal sense. Some believe all the way back to the time of Adam from creation, and this was just a pattern that was passed on. But here God makes the first mention even before he puts it forth as an ordinance or a requirement for the Jews. This is what the Lord says, "'Tomorrow is a Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. "'Bake what you bake today, and boil what you boil, "'and lay up for yourself all that remains "'to be kept until morning. "'So they laid it up all morning.'" As Moses commanded, and it did not stink, nor were there any worms in it. So notice, every day they saw God do a miracle. Every day they saw God miraculously provide again, miraculously provide again. God was teaching them how to live daily by faith, continuously dependent, so they could not get detached from the Lord. They had to live expectantly every day, dependent upon Him for His strength and nourishment for their lives. And yet then, every six days they saw another miracle because God says you can't store it up or it'll breed worms and it'll rot but then God says on the sixth day because I want you to have rest on that seventh day God says I'm going to give you a double portion and on that day you can take a double portion and then God does the exact opposite you see what the text says here that says they laid up a double portion and it did not stink nor were there any, it says, worms in it. So God would then do another miracle where God wanting them to have that time of refreshment, that day of rest and renewal, God would produce another miracle where on that day and that day alone, it would do the exact opposite. It could be something that they held over for the day. And again, what's God doing? He's just jealously guarding that time of refreshment, that Sabbath time, which would be the occasion where they would just have a time of rest and renewal. And he's jealously guarding that time where they would give themselves to God that day on the Sabbath to be with him. Verse 25, and Moses said, eat that today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today, you will not find it in the field. Six days, you shall gather it but on the seventh day, there will be none. So again, as they would go out the seventh day, if they went out to look for it in greediness or whatever, God says it, it won't be there. God's in complete control of this thing. He says, gather it in. On the seventh day, there will be none. Verse 27, now it happened that some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather, but they found none. is interesting how nonetheless still some people just cannot take god at his word yeah <laughs> it's verse most of them realized hey don't go out on the seventh day it's not going to be there god said take additional on the sixth day we live by faith according to his word if he says it he means it and god will honor his word and what a wonderful thing when a life comes to the place where they say you know what god's word doesn't always make sense it doesn't make sense that the, all the other days, if you try and store it, it rots. But on the one day before the seventh, the sixth day, God says you can take extra and it won't be there the seventh day because I want you to rest and spend time with me and your family and be refreshed. So don't even bother going out the seventh day. Okay, if God said it, then God means it. And, and that's simple enough. But yet here it says that some, unfortunately, you know, they just struggle taking God at his word And they still went out, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, How long do you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, for the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore he gives you on the sixth day bread for two days. And let every man remain in his place. Let no man go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Again take notice. The Sabbath instituted by God. God creating a day of rest. Creating an opportunity for refreshment. Which goes to show me. You know sometimes rest and refreshment. Is just as sacred. As labor and work. And I think sometimes spiritually. As Christians. The mistake that we can make. Is sometimes we want to measure spirituality by work and industry. And sometimes we think the harder we work and the more works we do and the busier we are or the more things we're accomplishing. And even I'll go so far as to say, you know, that we can measure spirituality by the number of meetings and things we participate in. And we think, oh well, if I do this and this and this and this, and somehow that equates to spirituality. And sometimes God says, you know, sometimes the most spiritual thing to do is is to rest. Because I know how I wired you. And God says, sometimes you just need a quiet time. You need a time of rest and refreshment, a time of renewal. God instituted the Sabbath for man, not man for the Sabbath. We're going to read later on. And of course, the Sabbath becomes that picture of who and what the Lord Jesus Christ ultimately becomes to us. And we'll talk more about that later on. But here, God says, I want you to appreciate, to enjoy this day of rest. So the people rested on that seventh day, which was Saturday for the Jew. And the house of Israel called its name manna, and it was like coriander seed, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Number chapter eleven gives us another little description. Says, you know that there they would bake it, they would, you know, they they would cook it in different ways. So, what exactly this was, we're not certain. I mean, some people try and give a natural explanation of this. When you consider the amount that God had to supply every day, I tell you, it was supernatural. You're talking two million people that God was supplying this manna every day for. Some people have done you know, some mathematical calculations, and for God to supply an omer, as members said, it's supposed to take an omer a day, an omer of manna for that many people in the wilderness, if you do some simple calculations, that means that every day God had to supply enough manna that would have filled uh, 30, or excuse me, 10 bo- uh, trains with 30 box cars to the brim. So, I mean, you, I'm sorry, there's no natural explanation to that. That is supernatural. And the thing that's astonishing to me is that God was so gracious, not only did He supply it, but He actually made it taste good. It says it, it tasted like wafers made with honey. I mean, He could have made it like those, you know, cardboard tasting rice cakes, you know, those rice cake patty, like gross things, you know. You know, somebody, these are really healthy. Try these, and you're like, oh my gosh. Like, it's like, even if He's a cardboard, this is disgusting. I mean, God's gracious enough to supply something that actually tastes good for them, which was probably really wonderful for the parents because for 40 years, it was manna, you know. Manna burgers, manna cotti, manna in the morning, manna in the evening. It was any way they could make manna, and I'm sure the parents really appreciated, but what are we having tonight, Mom? Manna. Uh, and, And God made it to have some type of a sweet taste to it in a way where it was actually appetizing, which is probably really helpful As it was supplied for them, what it was, we're not certain the Bible refers to it as angel's food, but here's the wonderful thing. Whatever it was, it was extremely nutritious and nourishing because it sustained them for 40 years in the wilderness. And I'm telling you, man, what a great reminder because I don't understand exactly how it works. Again, it reminds you of how they say, what is it? What is it? What is it? They didn't fully understand, but what they did know is that when they partook of it, it worked and it nourished them. And you know what? I think of how the experience spiritually with partaking of the word of God is much the same way. I don't understand 100% how it works. Sometimes I go, what is it? How is it? But I know this, it works. I know that when I get my face in this book every day and I read it, And I internalize it. And I know that when I make myself exposed to opportunities to hear the Word of God as well as read the Word of God, here's the one thing I know it works. It nourishes me spiritually, and it keeps me spiritually healthy, and it sustains me on my spiritual journey. As I go through this life. And just like this manna. God made it appetizing. But more than that. God made it very nutritious. It sustained them. It supplied all that they needed. Verse 32. And Moses said. This is the thing. Which the Lord has commanded. Fill an omer with it. To be kept for your generations. That they may see the bread. Which I fed you in the wilderness. When I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And ultimately, this is probably referring to how they remember put into the ark uh, of the covenant, uh, because verse 33 says, And Moses said to Aaron, Take a pot and put an omer of manna in it, and lay it up before the Lord to be kept for your generations. And as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron, so he laid it up before the testimony to be kept. So, probably allusions there. Remember, ultimately, later on in the Old Testament, when the ark is established it says that inside of the ark remember were were three things there was this pot of manna to remember the provision of god there was the budded staff remember of aaron which represented the authority of god and there also was the tablet of the testimony or the you know a reminder of the word of god and and so that the generations to come would always be in remembrance Of the word of God and the authority of God and the provision of God. And here it seems to be an allusion to how they were to take some of this for the generations to come. To always remember how God did provide and sustain them throughout their time in the wilderness. Verse 35, and the children of Israel ate manna for 40 years. Good thing it tasted good, somehow. Until they came to an inhabited land... They ate manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. Now an omer is a tenth, it says, of an ephaph. So again, this manna, notice, it was something that it says God supplied for them for 40 years. There was this miraculous provision until they come to the border of the promised land and then God brings a transition And God then allowed the manna to cease, and they then began to cultivate and develop the land. But again, what's God doing? God graciously sustaining them through their journey, through the wilderness. You know, the Bible says we live in a dry and weary land where there is no water. And Jesus said, you know, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. And you know what? There is a hunger in all of our lives a hunger that cannot be fulfilled and sustained by anything that this world offers. And as we journey through this life, it is imperative that we keep ourselves feeding upon the word of God and continually looking to Jesus every day partaking of him through his fellowship as the bread of life. Because Jesus says, if you partake of me, I'm the bread of life and whoever partakes of me says you won't hunger. And it is so wonderful in a world that is filled with dissatisfaction. And people are driven to this and to that and they are feeding upon things that are poisoning themselves and making them vomit because they don't know about the bread of life. And listen, you and I do. And we have the blessed privilege to say, man, listen. You don't have to eat that pig slop. You don't have to keep eating that same junk and being empty and hungry. I know how you can be fulfilled. It's Jesus. It's the bread of life. And to be able to introduce them to that reality is a blessed privilege.